Okay, good morning. I'm going to be reading out of John 3, 1 through 21. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God's with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that he would be he that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Thank you, Miss Tammy. Good morning. We're going through the book of John, and we're in some pretty famous spots in John 3. Uh, it's Pentecost, and um, as you know, strange as, as timing is, then we'll be talking all about the Holy Spirit next week. So uh, get excited about that. There's a lot to be said. There are tons to be said about these verses, and uh, we feel pretty confident in our shepherding staff of how God has led us to talk about this. If you don't have one of these, it's a little John book. It's literally just the book of John. More on that at the end of the service. You can grab one over there. But get out your Bible. Um, we'll have words on the screen, but we're going to be in John 3. If you don't have a Bible, there's a hard-backed black one in front of you. But the Word of God is what matters. Um, we've got analogies, ideas, things that we're going to do to unpack that, hopefully ripple into your memory the things that are there. But ultimately, it's the Holy Spirit who uh, tells us about what Christ has, has taught us, right? Jesus said, he'll teach you all things and he'll bring to memory everything I've taught you. So we're praying the Spirit speaks to you and that happens through his words, not through mine. So open the Bible, get into John 3. Um, uh, if we could, uh, Chris, can you come up here real quick? Yeah, yeah, 
Yeah, I know. I'm the worst. I should have told you beforehand. Um, don't clap for Chris or anything. I'm making him feel uncomfortable. Um, no, I said don't. Oh, guys, I'm so sorry. Uh, Chris is some kind of world-renowned chess expert. I don't know all the details, but uh, that's fine. Hey, uh, this is a, a chess board, right? It's got pieces inside of it. I'm going to say some other stuff here for a little while. Will you just set this up? Just set up the chessboard right here, and then you can go sit down and, and go be introverted somewhere. So, just kidding. <laughs> Uh, but Chris is great at chess, and so he's going to set up. Don't let this distract you. We need to talk about chicken soup for the soul. Kapow! You guys know these books? Who was a Christian in the 90s? Come on! Like, uh, you're, some of you are embarrassed. You're like, what are you going to say? I'm going to pretend like I don't know this. So um, I'm really interested in this. I had this memory as I was uh, kind of meditating on these verses and how we were going to preach them. And I just kept thinking about being in middle school algebra. And I have like several memories of being in like the first few days in seventh grade when algebra is taught. And it's amazing how many days I didn't think about algebra and how that panned out in my life to have to like take the last college class I took. Five years into college, I took algebra, college algebra to graduate. And it had been like something like nine years since I had taken any algebra class and I had to take it to graduate. And so these were the moments I'm about to tell you. I was thinking about chicken soup for the soul, not learning algebra. Anyway, so these were Christian books. <laughs> laughing are the algebra people. They're laughing down at me. <laughs> you don't know our algebra. Raise your hand if you're good at algebra. Nerds. Anyway, so... Uh, <laughs> You weren't reading chicken soup. So these books was, it was a line. There was originally one that was just chicken soup for the soul. You remember that one? And it was just stories. It was like a Christian's reader digest. And you were supposed to read these little things vaguely connected to scripture. And they were supposed to make you think Christian thoughts. And so um, they had like, uh, go back to the very first slide. You're getting too far ahead. You're, you're uh, getting the exciting one. So you had chicken soup for the woman's soul. These ones that came after there was a teen talk one. Some of these are in print now. Go to the next slide. They've got uh, also, uh, this is chicken soup for the country music for you country music people out there if you need christian inspired country music uh chicken soup for the soul hooked on hockey so see this is important because i had a football one i had one like chicken soup for the football player's soul and i was in seventh grade in springfield when you went to middle school when you got to seventh grade that's when you played real football before that you're playing peewee stuff but in seventh grade you got all the pads all the helmet you were just like it's football time so i had a football one go to the next one these are the weird ones that are in print right now um very my very good very bad dog imagine being the person having to come across vaguely Christian stories about your very good, very bad dog. Whatever. Dog people get it. I don't. I don't have a dog. Uh, curvy and confident. What is even happening? Christianity? Come on. You can sit down. Thank you very much. So, like, it's, it's so weird, though. Like, you start looking at these things, and like, I don't want to belittle, but sometimes it's like when people are like, man, Christians are dumb and simple-minded. And you see things like this, you're like, yeah, no wonder people, no offense, like if you let me, if you've got this book sitting at your table at home, I'm so sorry. But like the, some of these books really belittle what it means to follow Jesus. But uh, I don't think we have more of these. So you can, you can move on to the John slide. But I was in middle school and I was reading this one and it was about football. And it was about praying that you'd win the game. And I was like, yeah, we're going to pray we win the game. Cherokee Middle School, let's go. Have you ever prayed that your sports team, your sports ball wins the, the sports? No, you guys are holier than I am. But so I was praying. And in this devotion, it proposed this, this thought. What if the other team is praying for the same thing? Ow! My middle school theology was shot. In God's providence, if both teams are praying for victory. What does God do? It, think through this with me. If the Chiefs fans are playing that they win, 
and the, whoever the Chiefs' enemies, the Raiders, I guess, and the Raiders fans are playing that they praying they win. Who does God make happy? Yeah, that's right. I knew that was going to happen. I set myself over that. And so, yeah, yeah. And so then, like, but you see the tension? What if both sides are praying? And it just, like, I just flipped. I moved on. But I remember thinking, hold on, like, how does God choose? We're doing the religious things. How does we, how do we, and it reminds me of this idea of chess, right? We've got this chess game going on. And I think so many of us think through life this way. Look at quotes throughout history about life and chess or about religion and chess. There's so many quotes out there. I didn't have time to put them together. But we have this idea that we all have these pieces. And, and maybe you, you think of yourself as a different piece. Uh, almost all of us think of ourselves as the king, right? And, and uh, you know, we're trying to claim victory. We're trying to capture the other pieces and, and move around and try to figure out, like, the pawn can move twice when the first thing. So, uh, by the way, if any of you know Ben Rackers, my buddy Ben Rackers, my brother-in-law Steve, and they think they're really good at chess, I bet Chris could beat him. So if you know any of those people, tell them, I know a guy that can beat you. Come play him, right? Not doing service, but team Chris. Anyway, so we're playing this chess game and we're like, man, like, how many pieces can I move off the top of my head? While preaching a sermon, we'll see here. Okay, so you're moving these pieces, and this is life. And you might not like even like chess. You might be a checkers person or, or Parcheesi, or what even is Parcheesi? But you got your different games you play. All of it is this idea that you can control, you can manipulate the board. You are the king, and you're working out how your life works. And before you get like overly Christian about this analogy and be like, well, Jesus is the king, so I'm just a pawn, stop. That's not how you live life. This is how we live life. We really do. Like you teach each other, well, my child, this is the path for your life, right? Like maybe you're not a college person anymore and you're into the rise of trade school and you're anti the college that stuff. Whatever it is, you still have this idea in which if you go to a wedding and some people are getting married and they've done X things, everyone wants to talk about how well they're doing. Or if you know a kid or you know someone who's done X things, you'll talk about how good they're doing. They have a chessboard of life. They've moved things around to say they are doing it right. They're moving their pieces. They're capturing the right things. They're in control. You have a perceived game in which you believe life should function. And you say, this is what needs to happen for me, for other people. My way is better. I know how it should work. I know the chess game of how our country should work. And we need to move these pieces so we can get our agendas done. And we can protect ourselves from the other agendas coming on. This is life. And you can fit whatever you want to this chessboard. You can apply it to your marriage, to parenting, to America. But we're just moving the pieces around. It doesn't matter what each piece represents. We believe that we have some control in this game of life. And I think it's interesting that so often in history, what do you think the most powerful piece is on the chessboard? Yeah, you want to protect your queen, right? You want to use your queen. Very important. So often we make God this piece. And we say, you know what? I need a piece that can go everywhere, knock them all down with their fat fingers. I need a piece that can go everywhere and do everything. So I need to move God around and I can control it. I'm going to pray that I win the game. I'm going to go to church. I'm going to read the Bible. So, cause then I can move my powerful chess piece into the right place. I prayed for this job. I prayed that God would give me the right car. Now I've got, everything's going well in my life. So it must be that I'm playing the game right because I've put God where he belongs on the chessboard. This is all of human history. You can be like God. You can decide good for evil. This is what happened with, uh, from the beginning with, with Israel over and over and over, this issue of them doing what they want. Paul puts it this way in Romans, 21, uh, Romans 1, verse 21 through 23. For although they knew God, they knew God. Hear that. 
they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Catch this. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. They said, you know what? We have it figured out. We can build a name for ourselves and make a big tower. We can control the chessboard of life by worshiping other gods and blending these things. A little bit of this, a little bit of that, plus some Yahweh. We need to go to church on Sundays and worship, but also we got to do these other things because really what we want is to control the chessboard. This is our life and we're going to move things around to get what we want. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. So we come into John and John tells from the beginning who actually has authority. In the beginning was the word. Jesus was from the beginning. He's the light. He's life. If you believe in him, you'll become children of God. He comes in and he says, hey, you know what you need to have? He's the lamb of God. It's his blood that's actually going to cover this sin problem that's going to deal with your corrupt heart because he has authority. In fact, the whole wedding analogy, the whole wedding feast thing, it's actually Jesus who's going to make that right. You're not going to make the relationship right with God. It's broken. Jesus has to do it for you. He's the one that's going to fulfill this marriage covenant that we've broken with God over and over and over. Jesus is the temple. He comes in and say, hey, we're not having this exchange rate where you plus your efforts equal God's appeasement. That's how other people do religion. That's junk. The real way it happens is Jesus comes in, he flips these things because they're not needed anymore. You're not in control. Jesus is in control. He's the temple. His presence is going to be with us forever. Amen? This is what we've seen in John so far. Come to John chapter 3 with me. Let's pray and then we're going to read John chapter 3 slowly. God, thank you for this moment. I pray your spirit would speak, that you would make your word come alive to us, and that we would have life in your name. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for your love for us. May your spirit guide us. Amen. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. Say Nicodemus. When you say Nicodemus, do you like, does it roll off your tongue like a good guy or a bad guy? Raise your hand if you think he's kind of a good guy. Raise your hand if you think he's kind of a bad guy. That's great. We're going to talk about that. Who knows? Uh, I think John does that on purpose. He's a ruler of the Jews. Verse 2. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, Rabboni, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So Nicodemus is what? What do you know about Nicodemus? We just read it. He's a Pharisee. And then some other mumbles. What else? Did someone say something beside Pharisee? Yeah, he's a Jewish ruler, right? Where have we heard Jewish rulers before? couple times, Jewish rulers versus John the Baptist, and then we just did a story for a few weeks on the Jewish leaders of the temple. They're the ones who are like, why do you have authority to flip tables and cause a muck and get this ruckus? What are you doing, Jesus? Like, they, there's that tension, right? And so, so far, they've been characterized as they are versus the religious people moving outside of their purview, right, in John. And John does that intentionally. And now, Instead of being caricaturized, now they really personify. They're just a very specific person. This person comes. Nicodemus represents this tension so far. Think about that. John's put a name and a face to it. It's not a vague us versus them. Those jerks. Them Democrats. No. It's Nicodemus. He's a Pharisee. He's a real human. It's flesh and blood just like you. He breathes. He has thoughts. He comes and talks to Jesus. It's so interesting that he calls him rabbi. 
Why would he call him rabbi? There's, there's a big debate in scholarship on this. And even those of you who are familiar with The Chosen, uh, you know, The Chosen took a lane with how they presented Nicodemus. And scholars debate that. So there's two ideas with Nicodemus. Either he is coming to Jesus really curious and confuddled and like, Rabbi, what is us? I don't get it. Help me. That's, you know, that's kind of his attitude, right? German accent. Have I ever done that? That was weird. Um, or he's coming to coerce Jesus, to manipulate him. Rabbi, we can see you're a man of God. Maybe, uh, you know, you step towards us. We step towards you. We, we make things work out. You know, we do it together, right? And so there's this tension. I think John wants us to have, ah, we don't know. We don't know his motives. What is his motives? Is he trying to coerce Jesus? Say, hey, we think maybe you should, hey, let's, uh, we come together. Oh, you see what I'm saying? You know what I mean? Or maybe he's like, I don't know, man. You're saying this stuff, flipping tables. Can you help me? I think John wants us to be confused about his motives. But one thing we do know is he comes to Jesus at night and he finds the light. And it's very interesting. Hear that. He comes to Jesus at night and he finds the light. Hear what John's doing. Scripture's so exciting, right? Jesus has been told to be the light. And then it says at the beginning of this, he's coming to him at night. And then the end of this, that Tammy read, what does it say? It says, this is the verdict. Light has come into the world. Bah, come on, John. <laughs> he's trying to make it say, hey, look at this. There's something here. There's something here beyond just coercive or manipulative or curious. There's something deeper here. I think it's very interesting. He was coming at night, but he was drawn to the light. Jesus answered him. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Born again. Born again. There's a Greek word there for born again. Uh, I mean, the Greek word is born anothen, right here. It's born anothen is the Greek word. And that Greek word has a couple meanings. Does someone have a different translation besides uh, born again? What else is, maybe you have a footnote in your translation. What does it say? That's later on. Yeah, yeah. But for born again, is there like a footnote? Anyone? Yeah, thank you. Born from above. Yeah. And so when you're translating this word anathen, it can mean either one. It could mean born again or mean born from above. It can be born anew or born from the heavens. It means both. And so the question is, what's Jesus doing here? Yes, he's doing both. He's telling this guy, this religious leader, hey, everything you're thinking, you need to be born from. Imagine the tension. Nicodemus, a revered Pharisee, old man, study. He, look, we think of him as the enemy. He knows the Bible better than you. He's respected. He's taught the scriptures. He's a better Sunday school teacher than you. He knows more than you. He actually tries to follow God. He didn't get into being a Pharisee by saying, you know what? I'm going to get into the mafia and be a bad guy. That's not how he started out. Obviously, I don't think that's how that works. He really wanted to follow Yahweh. Right? And so we try to paint him as this really awful guy, right? The system was corrupt. There were some things that got off that they completely got astray on. Sure, there was money and power and twisted things that happened. But it's not like every part of him from the beginning from birth was completely like, oh, he's just trying to be a bad Pharisee. Right? He's revered. And Jesus, this young Jewish teacher from nowhere, from the sticks, Nazareth, he comes to him and he says, hey, I don't care about your perceived power. I don't care about your authority. You got to be born again. Jesus interrupts the whole conversation. Hey, we can tell that you're from God. And like, there's something going on here. Let's talk about it. You're sick, Nick. You need to restart. Everything you think, your whole chess pieces, your whole paradigm for the world, it's broken. Stop it. 
You need to be born again. Can you imagine telling your elder that? <laughs> Can you imagine telling someone you revere that's older than you, that, that, that has a lot of experience in the world around you, just looking at them and saying, hey, you need to start over. Everything up to this point, do it again. Go back. That's the tension we walk into. How would you feel? I mean, how do you feel when someone says, hey, the way you perceive this thing is wrong? How do you feel when you, you read those, those social media posts from people who, those idiots who view things differently than me? How do you, they, they call out your chessboard, oh, maybe you're doing it wrong. I wouldn't move my pawn that way. I would, I would castle here. You're like, hey, you're an idiot. Don't you ever tell me how to live my life. How do you respond, right? This is the tension we walk into. Say, this is my chess game, don't you know? Don't touch it. Don't mess with me. Jesus isn't interested in any proposed, proposal Nicodemus has, any perceived power or authority Nicodemus has. Jesus cares about something deeper. What if Nicodemus is playing the wrong game altogether? What if Nicodemus has a completely skewed perception of the world? He's missed it. Verse 4, Nicodemus says to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Implying that he's old. Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born again? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born again? I've seen birth. This is a weird sentence. Just linger on it for a few seconds, because maybe you don't get to do that in church. How can a man be born again? Can he? I don't even, I can't do motions for this because it just gets weird. How can he do that? And it's a weird question. Now, why is Nicodemus an idiot? We do this. We're like, oh, Nicodemus is like, Jesus is so brilliant. And Nicodemus is like, oh, be born again. I don't get it. Nicodemus is smarter than us. He's brilliant. There's an honor shame thing going on here. When two teachers discuss these things, if they ask questions of each other that they couldn't answer, they gained honor. And so Nicodemus comes to Jesus and says, and Jesus says, Right? And so Nicodemus is like, right? He's trying to respond. He's trying to get back to him. Do you understand what I'm saying? It's like if someone says something to you, you've got to have the smarter thing to stand up them. Well, I don't know about you. Well, I did this. That's what's happening here. And so Nicodemus is saying, hey, think about how dumb what you're saying sounds, young man. This is Nicodemus' heart, his attitude. Young man, young man, how can an old guy get back inside his mom and come back out? That's stupid. And what he's trying to do is challenge Jesus' authority as a teacher, right? And I'm not suggesting any motive he has. I'm just saying this is how conversations went. There was an attitude of like, hey, we need to go back and forth. Maybe he's curious, right? And John puts that tension before us on purpose. But I don't think it's fair to treat Nicodemus like he's a big idiot who doesn't understand being born again, right? He's trying to get above the conversation. Verse 5, Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and spirit, say water and spirit, hold that tight. We're going to go hard on that next week. Unless one is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And if you're not born again, you can't see the kingdom of God. You don't even have perception for it. But if you're not born again, if you're not born of water and spirit, you can't even enter it. Can't see it or enter it. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that's what is born of spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said this, that you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. We're going to dive deeply into this next week, right? But for now, know this. Jesus is appealing to Nicodemus, the Bible scholar, the Bible nerd. Hey, Nicodemus, you remember all those prophet thingies? 
Think about that. Maybe you're missing that. He's trying to pull him in to Ezekiel. He's trying to pull him into Jeremiah. He's trying to pull him into something. Back to Exodus. He's trying to pull him back into Genesis with this water and spirit talk, right? But think about this. Jesus is saying, Nicodemus, the best of the best, the top of the Jewish social order. It's a Pharisee. If anyone would know how to see the kingdom, how to enter the kingdom, surely it would be this guy. He's the guy that they pay and take care of to preach their sermons. He's the guy. He's the me of that time. He's the Adam. He's the, you know, and not to belittle them or us or whatever you think about Pharisees, but that's the idea. That's the, they're the hired holy people. They're, God has called them to do this sort of thing. Surely they should know. And Jesus says, no. You can only have real life if you look to Jesus. This is why Jesus goes on with that whole bit about the weird Numbers 21 story with, with the bronze snake and looking at, hey, those who look to this, just like that, the Son of Man must be lifted up. He's referring to his own death. He's referring to the fact that he is going to die to fundamentally redirect how faith works, how, how redemption works, how righteousness works. If you want a right relationship with God, you have to be born again. How do you be born again? Well, you have to look to Jesus because the Son of Man will be lifted up. He will be the sacrifice for the corruption that you brought on through your doubt, through your brokenness, through your sin. Go read that story in Numbers 21. We preached about it last year. Jesus will make sense about it. When you start reading, you think, wait, wait, Jesus will be lifted up. Because if you haven't heard, Jesus was lifted up on a cross. And we look to him to understand that through his sacrificial death, through his atoning death, he died the death that we deserve. He took on the sin, the death, the evil, so that as we look to him, we have a right relationship with God. We are given righteousness we're robed with righteousness, as Paul would say. We're fundamentally made new. We're a new creation because of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. So he says, look to Jesus. Nicodemus needs a new life to be born again. Be born from above. Something fundamentally different. Who is life? If you're being born again, you have new life. That's the implication. Who has John said life is so far? Jesus. Jesus is life. We're going to see that over and over and over. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. I am the way, the truth, and life. I'm the bread of life. You're going to hear this over and over. Jesus is the life. John puts this tension with Nicodemus. Will Nicodemus reject the chessboard, the paradigm that he has, playing the game to get the things that he wants to get? Is he going to reject that, or is he going to trust? Uh, is he going to reject that and follow Jesus and trust in Jesus, or will Nicodemus say no? This is my life. I understand this. This is how it works. I control the Lord because I understand the chess game in which he fits in and I will be in charge. Power, authority. And John puts that tension before us. What will Nicodemus do? And his name comes up a couple more times in John. We're going to hear about him. But John puts that tension for you as well. Oh, religious person, Sunday morning church goer, Sunday school teacher, pastor, New person who's not been in church, someone watching from home who doesn't even feel like they can darken the doors of a church. Are you born again? Do you, do you have life from above, a new life? Or are you still living in the paradigm, the postures, the patterns that you know that you think are right? Because you've got control. You can be God. You can control God. You can work out your life. You can save yourself. And John puts that before you. How's that working out for you? Do you see the kingdom? Are you able to enter it? Have you been born again? This is a picture of a tree. Uh, you guys are brilliant. What kind of tree is this? 
Say it like you mean it, like I'm not trying to trap you. Apple, Apple tree, like the best electronic devices ever made. Am I right? Amen? Uh, oh, man. No one responds to that except for angry Android people, right? Everyone's quiet because they know the truth. And then the Android people are like, no, you shut up. Anyway, sorry. Back to the chess game. Anyway, whoa, I'm offending everyone. This is an apple tree. Now, if I've got this apple tree in my yard, I don't. Um, apparently, it takes a while and, you know, whatever. It'd be great to have an apple orchard, but I think it takes a lot of time and effort, and I, I don't have that right now. But I love it. I love apples. I eat so much. I make, I make incredible apple pie, I think. Most people agree. Like, you know, I like apples and apple orchards, right? Um, so uh, these are apples. If I have this in my yard and I say, you know what? I need peaches next year. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to prune some of these leaves these branches that grow apples. I'm going to prune that one and that one. And I'm going to put some, some peach oil on it. I'm going to trim the bark a little bit. Will I get peaches next year? No. So if I play the chess game, if I do what I want within the boundaries of what I know with an apple tree, and I do whatever I can, am I going to ever get peaches from that tree? How do I get peaches? New life. Something new has to be planted. Something has to be uprooted and moved. And something else has to be planted and grown. This isn't a complicated analogy. Let me, let me tell you how it works in my life. This idea of being born again. My family's had a lot of newness lately. And there's some things that happen that uh, I notice with lack of sleep, with hurriedness, with um, my perception of how I think I ought to accomplish things. Uh, anger has come out of me. Like it's just I've been had a shorter fuse like like the Hulk. Right? That's my secret. I'm always angry. But like it's like I noticed that. And as a few years ago when I first started going to a counselor, that was the first thing I told her. It's a great counselor. I was like, man, I don't feel like I'm angry all the time. I feel like I'm a half a step away from being angry all the time. Hear me. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. If that's you... Or if that's someone you know, love them enough to tell them. There have been so many marriages that have just sit on anger for years and never deal with it. And we're watching these people fall apart because no one loved them enough to say, hey, this is wrong. Hey, you, don't, you weren't created to be angry all the time. And so if I've noticed these things, as God unearths these things in me, because I sit and I sit in silence with the Lord and, and, and we pray as a family and we talk through the day, I notice like, man, man, am I leading my kids, my family to think, ooh, we got to walk on eggshells around dad because he'll just snap. And we got to make him happy. That's not who the father is. That's how false gods work. And so then it comes over me and I say, man, what do we do? I need, I'm, I'm 37 years old. I've been following Jesus a lot of my life, the majority of my life. Why do I still have these things go on? I need to be born again. I need to be born from above. There's a sanctification that's happening in my heart. And so our family has responded with things we've taught here over and over and over, with prayer, with scripture, with church. I reach out to some people, say, hey, can you pray for me in this? Can you help? And those people send back great scripture, great thoughts. As a family, we start memorizing James 1, verse 19 and 20. Go and memorize it, angry person in the room, or the person you know that's angry. Memorize it. It says that you should be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger. The anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Righteousness is a relationship word. 
It means you're in a right relationship. I've used this analogy up here before, but I've talked about Lee Idol with a relationship. Lee has a relationship with me and with my family. But it would be weird if Lee started treating my son Asher like his son. That would be outside of the bounds of relationship that Lee has for Asher. He can be his friend. He can be his prayer partner. He can be a great, great mentor for Asher. We point to Mr. Lee a lot. Say, man, this is the kind of man you guys want to be. But it would be weird if he started treating Asher like he's his father, right? That's unrighteousness, right? And there's also an attitude uh, of unrighteousness we can cover in other times, but righteousness is a right relationship. It's your intent. And so the anger of man doesn't produce a right relationship that God desires. It's not possible. In fact, it, it destroys. It creates power and pride, scarcity. And so in my family, instead of saying, I just need to really, really work hard to get peaches in my life. I'm angry and I need to not be angry. No, the answer is, I need a new heart. I need to be born again. And so we memorize scripture together. We pray about it so often. And my kids could shake their heads. Yes, we've been praying. God, help us be slow to anger, slow to speak, right? Help us be quick to listen. God, help us recognize that your, that my anger doesn't produce your righteousness, right? I'm 37 years old and following Jesus for a while, and I still have ways that I need to be born again. This is sanctification. This is sanctification. That that we stop believing that we control and contrive the chessboard and the chess pieces. We don't look to ourselves, but we look to the Son of Man who's been lifted up, who's the only one that can redeem my little angry heart because I'm so arrogant and prideful and think that I've got to accomplish more every day. And if I don't do enough things, then I'm not a good husband or a good pastor or a good father or a good business owner or a good mm, crossfitter, whatever it is, right? And we look to Jesus because the son of man was lifted up. David was not lifted up. The son of man was lifted up. He took on that for me. And by looking to him, I find the satisfaction, the sanctification, the righteousness, the right relationship with God. How do you get born again? That's a, that's a funny question. That's almost like asking, how did you get born? Maybe I can have Joe come up here and explain how he got born. Now, see, it's a weird, like, how did you get born? Was it your choice? Did you decide? Did you, did you just say, now's the time. Boom, I'm going to be born, right? No, someone else labored and suffered and went through pain and more raised you to teach you the boundaries and, and what's right and the paradigms and the patterns in life you should work through. How we get born again is to recognize that someone else has labored, sacrificed, gone through pain so that you can have a new start, new boundary, a completely new life. Why would anyone do this? Why would anyone do this? For God so loved the world. For God so loved the world. For God, God created all things bigger than you. Completely different paradigm yet. He so loved the world that he gave his only son whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life church everyone listening from home I beg you plead with you give up the chess game stop approaching your life Like, if this, then this, because I'm in control, and I can figure out each thing, each piece. Quit saying, I understand my power. I need to have this thing, so I've got to do this to get it. 
I understand my marriage. This is how it should function. I need to do this. And if my wife does this, then ah, maybe I should stop believing you understand your sex, your sexuality. Like you get it. Oh, I know this is what's most important to me. And this is the most defining feature of me. And so I need to work out this paradigm. What if none of this is right? What if the entire chessboard is your false perception, your understanding of how the world works, but it's all broken? Think about this. What if there is evil? Hear me, lean in. What if there is an enemy? What if he's putting up hundreds of years, thousands of years into a paradigm, into a structure, into a nation, into a worldview that's just setting you up for corruption? What if your whole perception of getting a job and having a pension and having wealth and voting, what if it's all tainted with sin and evil? What if the Bible's right? What if Jesus means it when he says the devil's the father of lies? Is it possible that your understanding of what you think is so important, your understanding of marriage, your understanding of sexuality, your understanding of power, what if it's all broken? How would you know? What prevents you from claiming to be wise and becoming a fool? Have you been to a funeral where you're trying to say nice things about someone, but they were just a jerk? Have you been to a funeral where you know that there were abused kids and everyone's pretending like this didn't happen? Have you been to a tension where everyone's acting like there's not a problem, but there actually is? What if the whole perception is off? Jesus steps into Nicodemus's very clean cut, perfectly understood perception of the world. He says, all of it's wrong. You need to be born again. If Nicodemus must be born again, we all need to be born again. And there's no escape. In a culture that tells you to pursue any sort of escape through leisure, through marijuana, through video games, through sex, through drugs, through alcohol, in a culture that's constantly saying, you can never become what you're supposed to become. We have more anxiety, more suicide, more depression than we've ever had in any culture of any time in history. And we say, we just got to escape from it. Just do this. Read this. Find this. Here's chicken soup for the depressed soul. What if what you actually need is a fundamentally different start? You can't get peaches from an apple tree. You can't make your life different or better on your own. The Son of Man had to be lifted up. You must be born again. You must be born from above. If you don't recognize that you need a new start, if you know someone that doesn't recognize they need a new start, please pray for them. Pray today. If you're on the face, like, man, I don't know. What am I doing with this? I feel like something's going on. Maybe God's speaking to me. Say, man, God, may your spirit reveal to me my anger my struggles, my doubt, my lack of faith, my broken marriage. How do we need a new start? How do you realize that you're born again? You recognize that someone has done it for you. You look to Jesus just as the son of man, or just as Moses lifted up a servant, the son of man must be lifted up. This is why Jesus said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. We need a new start. We need to be born again. Restarting life through trusting in Jesus, in his love, giving up the patterns and postures we're so familiar with, comforted by and secured within and taking a new life in Jesus, the only true life. Maybe you need to stop making God the most powerful chess piece on your board. Maybe that's you this morning. Like, Hey, I, I really just control God. I'm in control of this relationship. When's the last time you just sat before God in silence, five, 10, 20 minutes said, what am I doing? Why don't you tell me what to do? Maybe you think you control God. Maybe you think you deserve it and you're owed to it. Maybe you have not been born again from above. You've never trusted in Jesus. 
To be born again is to release all of the chess game, all of the paradigms and say, I need to see the kingdom differently. I need to enter a kingdom apart from my control. Someone else has labored to give us new life. Starting in verse 16, read these words to me, and then we're going to have some applications. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him, trusts in him, should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Saved through him. Whoever believes, trusts in his name or in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe, does not trust, is condemned already. Because he is not trusted, believed in the name of the only Son of God. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world. And people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come into the light, lest his works would be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes into the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out by God, made right by God, is what John's telling us. We need Jesus. We look to Jesus. We trust in him. Come into the light. Be exposed. You're broken. We're all broken. Quit hiding. Quit trying to, to guard your king, to castle, to get everything set up right on your chest. Just be exposed. Recognize that everything, God shines light on all of it, and maybe it's all broken. That's okay because Jesus has come to give you life. Quit living in death. Here's some applications for this morning as we worship, as we take the bread and the cup here in a moment. I would encourage you to come pray. We, we call these steps the altar, and we don't explain that very often, um, probably because uh, my generation is a little afraid of overly emotive movements. But, but here's the idea of an altar. An altar is where you lay things down. It's where you submit. And the reason we talk about coming up here and praying, the reason you see sometimes in church people coming and praying, is this a, it's, a, it's, it's this. It's a recognition to say, I need to do something, not because I have to complete it, but because I have to have some bodily action to let myself know that I have to surrender. And it doesn't matter where you are in this room. You might be in the furthest place in this room. If the Lord's calling you to submit, to surrender to him, to give something up, maybe you need to pray with your wife. Maybe you need to pray with your kids. Maybe you need to pray by yourself. I would encourage you to come up here and do it, to kneel down and say, God, I need to be born again. And maybe that's not just salvific for you. Maybe you, you've already believed in Jesus and you're secure, but there are parts in your life like mine that are still broken, that need to be replanted, that need to be rerooted and, and done again. Maybe that's you this morning. You need to come and surrender, to give up the chess game. Say, I'm not, I'm not playing the game anymore. I trust that you're actually the king. You're in control. It's not about me. Maybe you need to give your life to Jesus. Come pray with us up front. I'll be up here. Adam will be up here. You can come pray with us or sit in your seat. Open your hands and simply say, Jesus, I want to look to you. I need to be born again. Maybe that's you this morning. You need to be born again, born from above because you've never given your life to Jesus. Maybe you need to be baptized. We're going to be talking about that in a few weeks. Do a whole series, a whole sermon on baptism. But we have this idea of water and spirit. Baptism, in short, is this recognition, this understanding, this outward display of saying, I have been buried with Christ and I'm raised to life in Him because I look to Jesus. Maybe you've never been baptized. And that's your response this morning, to give up the chess game of your own pursuits. 
Maybe you need to join the church. This is a tricky one. I know church membership can get people weird. We're in this together. And how are you going to prevent yourself from being wise in your own eyes, but actually being a fool? Right? I mean, that's what it says. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. How do you prevent yourself from doing that? Because evil's still chasing you down. The devil's the father of lies. He wants to destroy you. This is why we have church membership. This is why we join churches to say, I'm committed to following Jesus with this group of people because I can't do it on my own. My family can't do it on my own. We need to follow Jesus together. Maybe that's the way that you give up the chess game. Maybe that's what God's calling you this morning. Listen, I don't know what God's telling you to do. And I can list all these things, and these might seem like churchy responses, but the Spirit will guide you. What I can tell you this morning is that we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. And here's what I would tell you to do. If you're a believer, if you trust in Jesus, I would encourage you during this response song to come grab the elements and to sit down and open your hands and recognize that someone else labored for you. Someone else went through pain and suffering. They were broken. His body was bled out so that he could be made new, only so that you could be made new in his name. That's what we celebrate this morning when we do the Lord's Supper. And if you got other business to do with God, don't let that distract you. This isn't something super special in the sense that like you need to come do this so that you're forgiven or so that God loves you more. Man, if you haven't given your life to Jesus or if he's telling you to join the church or if he's telling you to baptize, you got to come to the altar and pray. That's what you got to do this morning. We can do the Lord's Supper next month with you, right? Or you can grab, you can do both. But during this time, I would encourage you, open your hands. Say, Lord, what are you asking me to do? You're not in control. Jesus was lifted up. Give up the chess game. Let's pray. We'll respond together. Father, I ask that you'd guide us as we look to you this morning. Thank you for this story, for for putting this conversation with Jesus and Nicodemus. God, we ask that your spirit would guide us, that you would speak as we respond now, as we look to you. Help us to look to Jesus. May your spirit convict and pull and draw near. God, please break through the barriers, the struggle, the anger, the pride, the arrogance, anything here that's preventing us from the things you're calling us to do, the insecurities. God, may we release all those things and recognize that you're above all the things we think we control. We trust you. Father, help us to trust you more. Help our unbelief. Guide us as we respond to you. Amen. We'll be down here.